Big Conversations Little Bar with your hosts Randy Florence and Patrick Evans featuring candid conversations with the Coachella Valley's most interesting and influential people. Pull up a bar stool and enjoy Big Conversations Little Bar. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Big Conversations Little Bar. My name is Patrick Evans and we are your host, me and Randy Florence, my co-host and good friend, and we uh, are coming to you live well, taped live. But we're still good friends. That's the important That's thing. That's the important thing. We're here at Little Bar, Skip Page's Little Bar, at the center of the Coachella Valley Universe in Palm Desert. Randy, nice to have you here, as I'm always. I'm thrilled to be here, and I'm really excited about this episode. Oh, this is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, we always, I'm sorry, I just kicked our guest. Ow! <laughs> Uh, and also thanks to John McMullen, our producer and engineer. We appreciate you all listening. Our guest today is a friend of mine. I've known Sue for a number of years. Sue Cameron, reporter for The Hollywood Reporter and uh, a myriad of other things in, in Hollywood and L.A. for many, many years. Now here in the Coachella Valley, I had you on Eye in the Desert to talk about one of your books. Yes, That's Hollywood we, Secrets and Scandals. Hollywood Secrets and Scandals, and every chapter is just named after a celebrity. It's so you just cool. Thumb through, pick a celebrity, and there were secrets and or scandals, and Sue knew them all. So, <laughs> Sue, I'm excited about this. I know this is one of those podcasts we could do over and over and over again. Fine, I'll just get a, a bed here, and we can. <laughs> <laughs> a, a lot a of people have fallen asleep here, so that would work out. Yes. <laughs> We, uh, we we were just chatting about the the beginning of your career, and and Randy and I both said this should be we should record this. <laughs> so talk about this because you had just gotten out of USC, yes, and you were shopping around for a full time job, yes, and so take it from there. You're at uh, KFMB Radio. It gets a little bit worse. My parents <laughs> my parents offered me a trip to Europe. I was standing by Tommy Trojan. They said, congratulations, this is your graduation gift. And I went, oh, and I don't want that. I, I need to go to work right away. That's what I want to wow. do. Wow. And your dad was a physician, correct? Yes. What a fool. But nevertheless, <laughs> um, I made a list of radio stations, television stations, and movie studios. And I, I started with radio because that was the first on the list. And I saw KFWB Radio, which was the big rock and roll station at that time. And I loved it. And I listened to uh, it every day. And I knew of all of the, the DJs, B. Mitchell Reed, Gene Weed, Bill Balance. Uh, I'm going to... And Jimmy, uh, Jimmy, who was the... Um, the host of Shindig, Jimmy O'Neill, was ridiculous. Wink Martindale. Anyway, I walked in there. Those are some names. Yes, yeah. that was who I met on my first day. Uh, that and Raquel Welsh. That's a whole other story. But I, I showed up. I showed up wearing. Uh, I had on a knee skirt, not a knee skirt, knee socks, and a plaid skirt. I look kind of like a mini mini Catholic <laughs> schoolgirl. Uh, schoolgirl, and. Um, I told them that I wanted to uh, write or do something for them. They gave me, they offered me one job in traffic. I didn't know what it was but until I saw what it was. Then I said no. And he said, well, wait a second. We may have something for you. I've been thinking about starting a newspaper. And he said, Could you, can you put together an eight-page newspaper once a week, every week? You have to interview the people, you have to shoot the pictures, you have to edit it, you have to lay it out. I said, please don't ask me to distribute it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was specifically about rock and roll, wasn't Only it? Only rock and roll. And what was so cool was at that time, the, 
the artists had to show up at the radio station in order to... There were these little mob guys at every station. And you had to bounce great before the mob guy, whose name I'm leaving out. And miraculously, the record would go on the air. To, to be able to put a record on the air... I remember when it was the Toys Lovers Concerto. I just remember that for one reason. The concept of not knowing a creative entity, and then there's a, a public thing that has a microphone, whether it's a television set, all in one second, you change people's lives. Gene Weed put that thing on the turntable, put a needle on it, and the record w- was number one. The effect of that was exhilarating. Um, another little known fact, when I, in my senior year, I danced at Hollywood A Go-Go on Channel 9. <laughs> I've never said this before. <laughs> the only reason I'm bringing it up, I was good, too. I bet. Uh, the only reason I'm bringing it up is that I was there the day Sonny and Cher came on for the first time. This is how I maintain friendship with these people, because Cher was 15 and terrified. There they were in their fur vests and all that stuff. And no one was talking to them. They looked like idiots. People were (laughs) mistreating them. Um, And I could see that this girl was just terrified and crushed. And I walked over to her and started complimenting her belt. And we started in some Indian belt. And she was talking about Indian stitching and all that. And I got her calm and she never forgot it. And that record, that was Baby Don't Go. And it went right up the charts. And I loved them, Sonny and Cher. And, and they ad- adored me. So my career usually paralleled the stars that I was meeting at the time. When Sonny and Cher went to television, I was the television editor of The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, I can trace my career arc with certain stars where you meet them very young and you never let go of them and they don't let go of you because I don't ask anybody for favors. They know if I call, it's okay. And so the doors were always open because you had a relationship. Ridiculous. Well, we'll talk a little. So Sonny and Cher, one of two of those stars. Yes. Name a couple of the other stars that kind of mirrored your arc along the way. Sadly, a, a lot of them are dead, uh, like Jim Morrison. Um, I guess Jim, I will say that he's the sexiest man I've ever seen. Really? I saw, I was at the whiskey that night, the first time he was there in the black leather pants, and he never turned around to face the audience, and I had a first row seat, so guess what I stared at? <laughs> His butt all night. <laughs> For 90 minutes in black leather. And um, I loved it. <laughs> Um, but I wasn't, I didn't take drugs, I didn't do anything, so I didn't really understand much about it. The next time I saw Jim Morrison, it was in a recording studio. I was going with Jackie to Shannon because she was going to um, record something, I can't remember what. And the whole wrecking crew was there, Hal Blaine on drums, Glenn Campbell on guitar. Oh my gosh. Everybody. And uh, we couldn't record because Jim Morrison took too much LSD and he went across the street to the Catholic Church and he stole statues and he threw them through the glass. Of the church? No. no, The studio. He only stripped the church. (laughs) He he threw them through the glass at at the recording studio. The last time I saw Jim, 
I was still with Jackie. It was three in the morning, and it was Thanksgiving, and her mother was massaging a turkey or something and was out of butter. So <laughs> we were sent to the market. It's called the Sunfax Market. It was at Sunset and Fairfax. So every weirdo from the Strip would go there. It was open 24 hours. We walked in and saw Jim standing in the cereal aisle, just looking at the colors on the cereal boxes. I mean, he was completely uh, zoned out. Um, those stories were tragic. Um, Cass Elliot, for instance, yes, we met in the rock and roll time. We became very, very close. Um, I had dinner with her the night she, before she went to London. Uh, I adored her. She was so bright, so funny, um, just extraordinary. And she said to me, I don't like the people who are staying in my... First of all, she said, will you come to London with me? She says, Debbie Reynolds is there, we'll have a ball. I said, I need a little more notice. <laughs> uh, I have to do columns ahead, I can't go. Anyway, she, we had dinner at Mr. Chow and went back. And I remember we were cruising along. She had a purple Cadillac with white tuck and roll and a white convertible. It was a white convertible. Big white sidewall tires. We are cruising along Mulholland Drive and Monday, Monday, and she's singing. She was at the height of happiness. And who knew that five days later, when we went back home that night, she said, I don't trust who's in my house. I want to give you all the things that are important to me. And she did. She gave you all of her, that's right, she gave you all the important possessions mm-hmm. for you to safeguard. Correct. Because she sort of had a premonition that something... She thought her house was going to be robbed. Yeah. And uh, there I am. And I waited until her daughter Owen was 18. I saved everything for Owen and gave it all back to her. And now Owen and I are very friendly. And there's a very fishy story surrounding her death. Oh, yes. It's a hammy story. It is a hammy. Yes. That was a totally a cover. Yes. Like, this, it's a BS story. Total lie. Yes, that I did. Cass, um, I didn't, I didn't hear on the news that she had died, and I, just, I was at lunch, and I went to my office at the Hollywood Reporter, and some kid from the center section said, you're friends with Cass Elliott, is it one T or two? And I said, one, why? He said, oh, she died. And I almost just passed out on the floor. And I went, stop, nobody write that obit, just stop right now. And um, I called her apartment in London and Alan Carr, her manager, picked up the phone and said to me, I'm crying, he's crying, he says, he was crazy. He said, God, do me a favor, do me a favor. I'm sitting in her bedroom right now, and there's a half-eaten ham sandwich uh, on, the, on the nightstand. You tell everybody that she died choking on a ham sandwich. Do you hear me? Put that out immediately. And I went, I do, and I will. And so I put it out. The story is still all around, although I keep telling the truth. Yeah, um, you didn't perpetuate the myth. You created it. I created it. Well, Alan is the one who said there's a ham sandwich. But you wrote it. Yes. So, so the story that I believe about how Cass Elliot died, you created that. Yes. And how did she really die? Uh, she was very overweight. She had heart issues. Uh, she also was unkind to her body by putting certain things in it that shouldn't be there and did that the night before. And it was just a confluence of 
horrors. Oh. And, and that was it. And I, I, I went to bed for a month. I couldn't believe that something like that, it just really threw me. It was horrible. Yeah, it, it is, though. It, it's really kind of telling because you, Alan told you to write this. You wrote it. And there's an old saying that, you know, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth gets its boots on. Yes. And, and you know the truth. Yes. And, and you've been telling the truth ever since. I know. It's only like, hello. But, <laughs> but, but it doesn't get any traction because <laughs> the lie is so much better, maybe. I don't know. Oh, the lie was great. But um, unfortunately, they were fat jokes, so that wasn't. Right. Not that, so great. No, that wasn't good. Uh, Owen, uh, Owen finally, con- Owen, that's Cass's daughter. She finally said to me, tell me exactly about the ham sandwich. And so I did. And I said, she didn't die from ham sandwiches. Relax. Um, but there's just, it's story after story. Well, at that I time. seem to be there all the time. Yeah, at that time in entertainment, this was happening more often than we would have liked it to have happened oh. um, with entertainers. Um, you got close to a lot of people that were going through that at the same, I mean, Jim Morrison, mm-hmm. Cass Elliott. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading your blog later, and you talked about the group from Glee ah. and some of the stuff that that group went through. I mean, as great as as the entertainment field was for you, mm-hmm. you dealt with a lot of pain and some very difficult stories, too. I have gone through, I think, some of the most horrendous tragedies in the world. Yeah. It started with Bobby Darren and then went to Cass Elliott. Um, Tell us about the Bobby Darren. Talk a little bit about Bobby Darren because, I mean, died at 37. Yes. Incredibly young. Always had health issues. Yes. He had rheumatic fever as a child, and he was told he wasn't going to live past something or other. It It was a date in his 30s. Also, he was told that his aunt was his mother, but his sister really was his mother. Right. So that was hard for him to take. He found that out before he passed. Yes. Yeah. Not, he didn't die from that, but no, so it was a very confusing thing. He was in love with Connie Francis, and Connie Francis's parents wouldn't allow it. So Bobby, who knew he had a time clock on him, was pushier and faster than anybody in the business. There was Bobby, and there was Sammy Davis. Both of them were two of the fastest running, most talented men. They each sing, dance, act do comedy and play every instrument and impressions and uh, there is nobody as talented as those two and I've seen everybody live um, I adored Bobby because we both love music and we we got along so well I would go over to his house and, and we'd, pl- we'd play music and he'd play horn lines and all the stuff and uh, he'd talk about Sandra D, who he really, really loved and wanted to get back together with. Um, he flew me up to Las Vegas sometimes, and he was playing. And after the show, I'd look at him and I go, "Oh my God, you superimpose the Everybody's Everything horn line on top of for once in my life because you're the <laughs> only person in the world who would know that." So I had a ball with him. Bobby wanted to die. He knew the time was running short. He, uh, his heart was failing. He knew that if he, he had made a dentist appointment, he knew that if he didn't take his antibiotics, he would get sick and possibly die. He deliberately did not take the antibiotics for the dentist appointment. Wow. And he died. 
Wow. You know, uh, again, testament to the guests that we have had on this podcast, my friend Fred Bronson was the publicist on the Bobby Darren show. Uh-huh. And Fred would spoke with us about working on that show and mm-hmm. how he had idolized Bobby Darren growing up. Mm-hmm. And he said that... Uh, when he first started working on the show, he didn't realize why Bobby didn't want to do a lot of publicity. Like, you have this show. Mm-hmm. But he knew he was, he knew time was short. Mm-hmm. And Fred said he realized after the fact that Bobby didn't really knew that he wasn't going to be around for a long period of time. So oh, he yeah. did the show, but he didn't do any additional outside publicity. No. The last show he taped, I was there. And he was, he did some solos and he did some duets. After it was over, they would stop the tape, and he would almost crawl to the others to the, behind the curtain where there were big oxygen machines, and, and he would have to use all that stuff to uh, get back on stage and tape another segment, and then he could go back to the oxygen machines. The thing that kills me is he and Sandra D really did belong together, and they were looking at a house on Stone Canyon Drive. They were really going back together. Oh. After she, he... After he died and she lost him, she just wanted to die. Hmm. And she made sure she did. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Cheery, isn't it? <laughs> no, but they're, 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 it's terrible, the people I've lost. Debbie Reynolds, Carrie Fisher, Valerie Harper, Mary Tyler Moore. I was at the taping of the Betty White's Hot in Cleveland when Valerie, that was what she shot after the cancer announcement. And I was there with her every day to make sure that everything was okay. And so I was locked on a set with all of those women who I'd known all those years. And When did you first meet Betty White? Oh, God. Probably the late 60s. Yeah. Yeah, she still had a hairspray, the same hairspray. Betty was one of the sweetest people in the world. That's not phony. That's just Betty. Well, I, you know, I think someone like a Betty White, you can't be phony and have that persona and that longevity. No. And that, you know, authenticity breeds the kind of respect that she had. But she had a temper. That, oh, is that right? Oh, yeah. Cloris Leishman was really acting up on the set, and Betty didn't like it. Betty was all about professional, and Mary was so sick, and Valerie was good, but heading to disaster. And Cloris Leishman didn't show up one morning. No one knew who she was. She was hitchhiking. She had on a ba- she was nude and had a bathrobe over her. Cloris Leachman. Mm-hmm. And was on trying to hitchhike uh, on Pacific Coast Highway to get to the set. Finally, someone picked her up, and she showed up in this bathrobe. Naked in a bathrobe. Yeah. <laughs> with her hair all the way out to here, and that's when Betty White, <laughs> Betty White took her assistant and took her behind a, um, a flat, and said, take care of this. And so who has to take care of it? Valerie Harper. Wow. Betty says to, uh, the, Betty's assistant says to, says to me, you must tell Valerie to handle this situation. This is Valerie who's just announced that she, yeah. Brain cancer. Right, so I tell Valerie, and Valerie looked at me and goes, was it ever thus? <laughs> she, she did it the whole time on Mary Tyler Moore. She is in, she's dying from brain cancer, and she still has the job of keeping Chloris in line. Oh, my God. <laughs> and you knew Valerie 
from back in the Mary Tyler Moore days. Yes, we met when she shot the pilot on Mary Tyler Moore. And so in hindsight, uh, yes. what, what is it that made people feel so comfortable with you to be open and honest and trusting? Because I was not in awe of them. And I never asked them for anything. And I complimented them. And they knew if they gave me an interview, they would read back what they said to me. They could trust you. They trusted me. They, they still do. I mean, I just don't ask people, people for favors. And my calls are returned. Like when ABC was developing an illegal miniseries on Cher, I called her up and I, I said... They're going to call you. They're going to say, we're going to shoot this without you. But if you're executive producer, you'll have total control. And I tipped her off to that. And, and she, your relationship with Cher goes back to oh my God. the very beginning. You mentioned 15 years old. Yeah. She's 15. Well, the first time she and Sonny opened at, um, it was Ciro's. And then it was now then called It's Boss. Some horrible. Now it's the comedy club. They had just had... Uh, two hits and it was the first club they ever played as Sonny and Cher Cher gets very 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 frightened and she throws up stage fright yeah she throws up before every show and Sonny just gets sick of it or got (laughs) sick of it and so she was not coming down and they had a time when they were supposed to go on and he's banging on the bathroom door and she's not coming out and he's furious and he leaves. He's just walking off. And I go, knock, 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 knock. I go, it really is going to be fine. They already love you. You're going to sing Walking the Dog. They love that. You're going to sing Baby Don't Go. It's easy. Come on, let's go. And she opened the door after throwing up. And uh, I hope she rinsed out her mouth. And, and, then, <laughs> and then I took her down to the stage. I mean, that's, that's she gave me a coat from um, what's his face give me the husband with the long blonde hair oh Almond Almond Greg Almond oh Greg Almond yeah Yeah. the Almond brothers yeah he gave her a fur coat that looked like it was done by Trapper John but it was very cute but it's probably from Dicker and Dicker in Beverly Hills yes of course (laughs) (laughs) you know they've gone under seriously I know we should mean a moment of silence for Dicker I know I grew up with you know watching the prices right now I say First provided by Dicker and Dicker. I know. I know. Uh, talk about Sonny. Mm. How well did you know Sonny? Extremely well. Um, he was the brains. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew why they grew their hair long. He knew why they put on the vest. He- well, she was far more talented. No. I mean... <laughs> Uh, Breaking it, news. It pains me to say that about a fellow <laughs> Italian. It pains me to say that about a fellow. But, but, I mean, like, but he understood that. He was a truck driver from Gardena. And he got a job as a record promotion man. I knew him because, of course, of dancing on Hollywood A Go-Go. But his day job was promotion man. So when I was at KFW, I would see Sonny there. Pitching. Car- carrying other people's records. And he kept that job until they could make enough money to, to move out. With, they were in ratty apartments. But this was a guy who was really smart. He knew his product. He knew how he would sell. He knew how she would sell. Um, he was incredibly smart. Where he made his mistake 
was when she became so popular, much more popular than he, he tried to control her and he tried to clamp down. That was, he was doomed. She got pretty strong at that point, didn't she? Yes, it was when they had the CBS TV show. Mm -hmm. And Carol Burnett taped on one stage and and Sonny and Cher taped on the other. And there was a a public restroom between the two. So I would go back and forth watching both shows taped through the ladies' room. And I remember Cher, once again, refusing to come out of her dressing room, uh, refusing to talk to Sonny. She was furious. And um, she dumped him. And that's what that's what happened. But he he was very smart in booking and and how to how to how to produce talent. And he was really nice, a re- really really nice. Well, I, I think you know it, it, it's a little bit of a testament to Sonny that he was able to reinvent himself, come out, become mayor of Palm Springs, and go on to Congress. Amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. I mean, I was beside his mother. I was probably the most stunned person in the world. <laughs> I mean, it was it was shocking, and I was devastated when he died. Devastated. I got to meet Sonny. He was uh, on the stump going around the country, and I was working in Virginia, and he was doing a speech, and I got to introduce Sonny. Oh, nice. So it was, and I'd grown up watching the Sonny and Cher show, so it was kind of a big deal, and I never imagined I would end up living in Palm Springs, mm-hmm. and this was long before I, mo- I moved, and, uh, but he was, he, there was a charm about Sonny. He's oh. very, very disarming. He was adorable. He was just very easy to talk to. Oh, we were yes. not allowed to talk during the show. My mom would not allow us to talk. Mm. And the one thing she talked about over and over was when Sonny would reach over and move the hair out mm-hmm. of Cher's eyes, mm-hmm. my mom would just die. Every well, that's episode. that's really sexy. <laughs> it is. She loved it. Especially because he had to reach up. Well, she, she's about three feet taller than he was, yeah. She got on a ladder. With all due chair. respect to Sonny. It was, also, it was also good for the show because it made the pe- people believe that they were close. <laughs> I'm sorry. But. All right, so go- you're going back and forth between Sonny and Cher and the Carol Burnett show. Yes. So talk through, the, through the restroom. I, yes. So. Talk I a had bit. a seat. I had my own seat at either show if I wanted to sit. Talk about your relationship because and now that is another show that is so iconic for my youth. And, and you go back and watch those sketch. No one was funnier oh. than Tim Conway. Oh, my God. Harvey Corman. Harvey Corman. Like and it was clear they were just working hard to make each other laugh mm-hmm. during these sketch. Like, who can break up the other guy? The Carol Burnett show. I, Carol Burnett was my idol. I just is my idol. I just adored her because she's so talented. Uh, she can do dramatic acting, all this. I mean, it remains today how extraordinarily talented she is. Because I grew up in the theater, I had a biological father who owned theaters in Los Angeles, and so I grew up, my parents were divorced, and uh, the doctor paid for everything, but the, uh, the artistic uh, uh, lawyer who was Mickey Cohen's um, lawyer because he worked for Jerry Giesler. Wait, what? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going a little fast. There's, I'm just kind Mickey of dropping Cohen. bombs. I don't mean to that was That was kind of a... I've known you for a long time. I didn't know that. <laughs> okay, let's take it back to... <laughs> Anyway, I was in the theater. We'll get to Mickey, Uncle Mickey in a minute. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll circle back. We'll but get go to ahead. Uncle Mickey. Um, Uncle Mickey. That's what I called him. Um, where was I? I got so sidetracked. We were talking about Carol. Uncle you, Mickey. You, you, you oh, were yeah. exposed to the theater stuff through, through right. your biological dad. And that's dad. why I loved Carol Burnett. 
because it was a theatrical show where they would rehearse all week and then they would only shoot it twice on Friday. They did the uh, rehearsal show and then the air show and they'd take the best from both of them. And I was there every single Friday from three in the afternoon till 10 at night watching them shoot those shows. Not only did I have lots of friends on it, but I was watching Hollywood history and the best talent that you could see at that time. Just extraordinary, extraordinary people. Um, that was really where I, I hung out. I didn't want to not visit Sonny and Cher because they wouldn't, would wonder where I was. So I certainly spent time there, but every Friday I was, was at, at Carol Burnett. Carol's, just sitting there. They gave me, I had a special seat. I wasn't in the audience. They were so sweet to me. So sweet. Uh, she still is. Uh, it's, it's You know, in hindsight, you, you, you've had a front row seat to some of the most amazing stuff in the Another history of television. Time. Did you, when this was all happening, did you have an appreciation Absolutely. for it? Absolutely. Because of my parents, my mother was a singer. The father's the Beverly Hills OBGYN guy. And... The bio dad is Mickey Cohen's lawyer and a, and a theater owner. Um, I had a front row seat for everything, whether it was my father taking me to see Ingemar Johansson and Muhammad Ali live, uh, to the Hollywood Stars game with Milton Berle, who was one of his clients. I was always there, and that was the only thing that I knew. I'm always part of the gang. But... I was because I was invited. There were people like I hate that movie, Almost Famous, where it's a kid charging, so he can say that he hung out with the Rolling Stones or whoever it is. That is not who I am. I was invited all the way. I chased after nothing. I found myself with those people and in those events constantly, and I was extremely aware uh, of the his the history of it. All right, one of the things we're going to get back to the Mickey Cohen thing in just a minute. Yeah, but one of the things I like to do with Sue. I'm going to give you a name. You're going to give me a story. I pray I know them. I'm, <laughs> I, I, I doubt I'll throw a name that you don't know okay. out. But I'm going, to, I'm going to focus on some people who obviously have involvement here in the Coachella Valley. And we've already talked about Sonny Bono. Yes. What about Frank Sinatra? Ah, always nice to me, not always to other people. He's the sexiest man I've ever seen in my life. Sexier mm. than Jim Morrison? They, well... That's an issue because... That caused a pause. No, it yeah. caused a pause because they both have blue eyes. But Sinatra has no butt at all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how his pants stayed on. Actually, they didn't. <laughs> well, he was they didn't. He they was were rarely on. <laughs> well, that is true. <laughs> they weren't on. Um, I met him when Nancy Sinatra <laughs> threw her, her uh, record party for Boots. Mm-hmm. And uh, she introduced me to him, and I almost gasped. It's not that he was so handsome. He had the strongest energy, and those blue eyes, it was like nothing I'd ever see. He just flattens you. You almost can't even speak. It was different than when I met Cary Grant, who's the most beautiful man in the world. Frank Sinatra had a danger in his eyes. There was an edge to Frank always. that Cary didn't have. Nothing. But uh, he's... <laughs> No, he, there was no edge to Cary Grant ever, um, but he he was he was breathtaking. Can I tell you one thing about Carol Burnett and Cary Grant? Yes, of course. Oh yeah. Carol had always wanted Cary 
on her show, and he never would go. And she was he was the one star she really wanted to meet. She finally got Jimmy Stewart on her show. But Cary Grant was the one. The holdout. Yeah. And she and I got invitations on the same day to a record-playing party that Peggy Lee was giving for her new album. And we were told that Cary Grant was going to be there. So I called Carol, and I go, did you hear this? And she's screaming on the phone. She goes, yes, I'll be there, I'll be there. So we make a deal. We're going to get there at the same time. I get there early. I'm sitting on the couch, and there's no Cary Grant. I'm like a beacon going like this. Where's Cary Grant? (laughs) Carol comes in. She sees me. She sits down on the couch next to me. There's still no Cary. So uh, finally he came in, and oh, my God, it really was Cary Grant in the suit from North by Northwest and the gray tie and the white. Oh, my God. And... I was saying to her, oh my God, he's here, he's here, he's walking to the bar, now's our time, nobody really knows he's here, we have to get to the bar now. And I got up and, and I, come on, Carol, let's go. And she said, I, I can't. I said, what do you mean? You got This is Cary Grant, this is your biggest chance. I can't, I can't, I can't. I go, what's the matter with you? And she goes, I wet my pants. <laughs> and I went, too bad, I'm going to see Cary. So I left Carol in a puddle on the couch. And oh, did she really? Yes. That was <laughs> That's fantastic. She did eventually get to the bar. I don't know how. I didn't ask any questions. Just wrap a sweater around. Yeah, right. All right. Uh, you just mentioned Nancy Sinatra. Talk a little bit about Nancy Sinatra and your relationship with Nancy. She is a sweetheart. She is a sweet, loving girl. Um, she's a daddy's girl. It's a shame that he left uh, uh, the original Nancy. Bar- oh, yeah, Nancy. Yeah. It really broke the kids, all of them. Uh, it, was, it was very, very tough on them. I, I, Nancy is just a sweet, wonderful girl who has had many more hits than we realize. People forget. She, she had a number of top 40 hits. Yes. Two number one hits. Yes. I mean, she uh, did good work. and something stupid with, with her dad. Yes. And he insisted that he, she record it with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, she lives out here full-time now. I, no, I, she moved. Oh, she moved back? Sorry. Back to L.A.? Yes, or? I think she moved to what we call the Suzanne Plachette building. But I can't tell you where it is. <laughs> <laughs> Another one of my crushes growing up. Oh, Suzanne Plachette. Oh, God. Fabulous woman. So fabulous. So smart. So bright. Um, but Nancy, Nancy, I just adore. She's a sweetheart. She, I met her... Once, mm-hmm. uh, when Frank Jr. was getting a star on the Palm Springs Walk of the Stars. Mm. And I was doing an interview with Frank, and he was such a gentleman, mm-hmm. a delightful guy. Mm-hmm. And we went and sat down, and I'm doing the interview. And, and during this, I kind of feel this energy behind me. Yeah. And I turn around, and it's Nancy. Oh, wow. And I realized I was sitting in her chair. Ah. And <laughs> Okay. She was a little irritated by that. And, and Frank Jr. was delightful. He looked at me and goes, it's okay, Nancy. We're just doing a quick interview for mm-hmm. the television. He'll be gone in a moment. <laughs> and I was. Oh, but, that's funny. <laughs> but Frank, was such a, <laughs> Frank Jr. was such a gentleman to me. And I, I met him and his father on the same night in Vegas. He was conducting for his dad at the Desert Inn. And yes. then he was the lounge show afterwards. Yes. And uh, so I, I briefly met Frank, but I got to spend more time with Frank Jr. And we did several interviews over the years. Uh, Frank's it, father Frank. was so big, so larger than life. Frank Jr. 
who sadly looked like him, meaning it was harder for him to break out as yeah. a... He had a really good voice. He was a good entertainer. He was a talented conductor. Real shame. Oh, it, no, and he died much too young. I know. I mean, he died younger than his father, 72. It wasn't a ham sandwich. No, no, it Maybe. wasn't. Uh, <laughs> All right. Uh, You've also worked with, I I always mention my crushes on these shows because they always seem to pop up. Leslie Ann Warren. This Uh, may be why your wife doesn't listen. It may be why she doesn't show up for these. Dusty Springfield. Yes. The son of a preacher man. I could listen to 50 times a day. She hated that song. She hated it. Why? It was turned down by Aretha. And she didn't care that it was turned down by Aretha because she thought everything should go to Aretha first. She knew. Yeah. And uh, they gave it to her. Aretha didn't want it and gave it to her. And she said, uh, she said I just hate this song. And I know it's a hit. I'm going to be stuck singing it my whole life. And it was. And then Aretha was so angry at Dusty for making a hit because out of it. Because it was a hit, yeah. Uh-huh. Aretha was not nice. If you had a hit, she ki- tried to redo it and come after you. Mm. Think of her Dionne Warwick, I Say a Little Prayer. And then Aretha came along. Bam! She wow. tried, tried to do the same thing to Dusty, but since Dusty hated the song, she didn't care, and she, and she liked Aretha's version. Dusty is the greatest singer, in my opinion, who ever lived. Really? Yes. Um, she could sing opera, Broadway, jazz, blues, uh, everything. The right. most extraordinary singer. It's a, it's a great loss, but when people have alcohol and pill problems, and they don't stop it in time, you saw a lot of that. You, you didn't saw you? that so much of your career. And it's why me, God? <laughs> I mean, I didn't know anything. I took nothing. When the association had a hit called "Along Came Mary," I don't know what that is. So I'm sent to interview them, and I go, "Who's Mary?" <laughs> and the guys are laughing at me, and I go, "What's so funny?" I'm still in the pla- the plaid skirt. What's so funny? And they wouldn't tell me. And then at the end of the interview, one of them, Terry Kirkman, who I understand is ill, took me aside and said, well, this is really what it is, and I need to watch out for you because you need to be careful because you really don't understand uh, what's going on here. <laughs> yeah, because there's a whole subculture I did, of music. I knew nothing. When Jackie DeShannon was recording with Charles, Charlie Green and Brian Stone, Sonny and Cher's managers, um, let's just say that they were hired by friends of Mickey's. And that Mickey Cohen. She, yes, and that sh- uh, Cher's father was also a friend of a Mickey. That's why he was always removed, and that was where the money came from to start Sonny and Cher. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. <laughs> anyway. All right, another question, uh, <laughs> because you, you brought something out. So the, yes. the, the Dusty Springfield story reminded me of this story, and I know that you know Sammy Davis Jr. Yes. He hated the song The Candy Man. Mm-hmm. And he said, this song is going to go in the toilet, mm. and it might take my career with it, yet it was his biggest hit. Right. So right. Tell you me, have to be grateful. Tell me what a star thinks about that when something is a yeah, hit. Yeah, because he really, he, he did not want to, I mean, by right. all accounts, he you, did not want to record that song. For Sammy, who I knew quite well, you take the check. <laughs> he cashes okay. it and buys another car. Yeah, okay. Uh, Dusty never got any joy from... Son of a preacher man, really. Really. Uh, there were other songs that she truly, truly loved. What were her? What, what were the song? I mean, she has uh, a great catalog, but she loves "All I See Is You." 
That's one of her favorite songs. The favorite album is Dusty in Memphis. The favorite song on Dusty in Memphis is Just One Smile. And uh, Dusty, because she did have those problems, those substance abuse problems, Don't Go Breaking My Heart was written by Elton for her. And he couldn't get her in the studio, so he gave it to one of her backup singers. Kiki D. I'd try not to even mention the name because I'm so <laughs> furious. Um, and then the Bond people gave Dusty Nobody Does It Better. And they waited a year to get her in the studio. And they just kept waiting and waiting. And So uh, then Carly Simon got it. Right. Because Dusty blew it. Wow. So it was And that was a Bond. That, that huge. Every Bond song becomes I a know, number one hit. But when you are under, apparently, under alcohol and pills, you make very self-destructive decisions, which is why she died. Even though she got sober in the 80s, uh, she never had a mammogram. And that's the self-destructive thinking of an addict. And by the time she found a lump, it was too late. Well, I, there there are a lot of stories, like Tammy uh, Wynette. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it hap- it happens all the time. It and happens all the time. Um, all right, let's circle back to Mickey Cohen. You called him Uncle Mickey? Yes. Okay. I didn't know who he was. <laughs> I'm eight. Oh, Mickey, he's so fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's really great. Uh, Mickey Cohen was notorious to an eight-year-old well, <laughs> uncle <laughs> uncle Mickey was a great everybody's guy everybody's an uncle right, talk about your relationship with Mickey Cohen uncle Mickey I am sorry uncle Mickey <laughs> so your dad was his lawyer yes Jerry Giesler was the big Hollywood star lawyer that was Marilyn Monroe's lawyer and everybody's and my father when he graduated from USC law school ends up as the young man on the totem pole at Jerry Giesler's office which was at Hollywood and Vine in the Taft building, which is why I ate most of my meals at Musso and Frank when I was with my father. But to get back to Uncle Mickey, there was a club on the Sunset Strip called Dave's Blue Room. It's called, then it, many years later, it was called Gazzari's. Now I don't know what it's called, but it was the hot spot. That's where, I'm sorry to say, my parents met. My mother was, had her own show on NBC Radio as a singer, very beautiful. Uh, did was on the road with Eddie Foy and Ben Blue and all of these all of these comics, and she saw this kind of handsome, dashing Hollywood type uh, at this bar on the Sunset Strip. I don't know how, what happened after the bar, but I know I appeared. <laughs> well, I think we can surmise what happened. <laughs> they were married. <laughs> Episode two of the Sue Cameron story. <laughs> <laughs> they were married. Uh, but she soon realized that he was not going to be financially responsible, that he was too slick and too interested in Hollywood. So that's why she looked around to see an available, responsible man who was the OBGYN man who delivered me. I love the look on your face. Anyway. So, anyway, back the to my father. The of this story is just fantastic. Okay, back to your... So, so my father took me to Dave's Blue Room because I kept saying to him, where did you meet my mother? And he would say, Dave's Blue Room. And he said, I will take you there. I'm eight. And he takes me there. Uh, I'm eight. I remember tall bar stools and, and tall people and noise and smoke. Um, and then, then this man came over. Hi, Polly. That was Mickey. And he said, um, he said, this is Mr. Cohen. And... 
Mickey said, oh, call me Uncle Mickey. I went, okay. Hi, Uncle Mickey. Um, there was another point when Mickey was shot after he walked out of Dave's Blue Room. That was when my father was with him. I was not. My father was not in the shot. More of Mickey. You want more of Mickey? Yeah, I want more. Well, because Mickey ran Hollywood. I'm he ran L.A. Eight. I only know. He was <laughs> Uncle Mickey. He was. He was Uncle Mickey. And w- one night, um, my father said, we're having dinner with Uncle Mickey. I was probably now 10. And I went, oh, goody, goody. <laughs> <laughs> and I, we go to what I did not know at the time was a strip club. I don't know this. I'm 10. So... Was there a kid's menu? <laughs> I love that so much. Don't ask me for my comeback. Um, uh-uh-uh. Eight, nine, ten. So, I'm introduced to these two huge women. I'm already short, and so is Mickey. But these two women are not short. And Mickey goes, Susie. I'd like you to meet Tonda Leo and Miss Beverly Hills. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> they were the strippers. I don't know this. Uh, Miss Beverly Hills was Mickey's girl. And so I sat in the booth. My father just put me in a booth. It was very interesting because it helped in Hollywood. I mean, that I was thrown into all of these things. Um, I'm sure dropping Uncle Mickey's name didn't hurt. Mickey was <laughs> Mickey was funny and sweet, and you could tell when he was in a bad mood. And when he was in a bad mood, my father would leave and take me with him. Yeah. Uh, wow. Nothing bad ever happened to me, but uh, when my mother found out that about Uncle Mickey, that didn't go over well. Really? No. She didn't really want you hanging out with mobsters. I'm surprised. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's go back to the uh, uh, Bob Hope. Okay, Bob Hope is not one of my favorite people. I know that. That's why I asked the question. I Actually, was, it wasn't just a question. I just said his name. You, you go from there. I answer them. <laughs> no, you do. Oh, no. Um, I am a middle-of-the-road person when it comes to politics, and I don't like people all the way on the right or people all the way on the left telling me what to do. Mm-hmm. I want to make up my own mind. And Bob Hope, anything that he did, it was always planned to put a certain point of view in front of people. And he used his um, persona of being Mr. Good Guy, going all around the world, entering the troops, when he was allegedly having affairs with most of the women who were on those trips with him. Oh, God, yeah. And um, I I don't care for that duplicity. Do I think that he was a good American and did a lot for the world? And he was tremendous what he did. He really influenced so much good in this country and bringing bringing hope to all of those troops. Other people did it, but Bob Bob Hope was the king. The problem is that I was TV editor of The Hollywood Reporter at the time when he had his specials on, and his specials were always terrible because it was terrible written material, and he would just stand there and read a cue card, and half the time, if he was interviewing someone, they weren't even there, and he would try to react to them, and they'd bring in some... It's such, it was so sloppy, and uh, looking down on the American public, thinking that... You'll you'll love this show. I also he thought he could throw anything at yeah. them and they'd like it. 
Yeah, so he was cheating on his wife all the time. And um, I did go to his house here. Arthur Elrod uh, gave a par- Arthur Elrod and Bob Hope gave a party. So I was invited to both the Elrod house and Hope's house, which was really really something so I never I didn't want to get away from Bob because there was news and all of that but sure we he knew who I how I felt about him because I was not kind to his specials <laughs> but I would always go because my friends were starring in them he was a, a terrible father all the children were adopted he just they were props uh, his wife just went to like Rose Kennedy just went to Catholic Church and prayed while he cheated allegedly allegedly um, <laughs> I'm trying to bring both sides because he really did a lot of good for the world. And I don't see anybody else doing that. But there was a personal life behind the scenes. Yes. Yeah. Well, I will tell you, so I saw Bob Hope perform live twice Mm -hmm. in the same day. Oh. And it was at the University of Virginia. Uh Uh-huh. He appeared at the halftime show of a football game, and it was, I think, the university's anniversary, Mm -hmm. a big anniversary. But then he did a comedy show that night. The Bob Hope that popped out of the cake at halftime mm-hmm. and the Bob Hope that did the comedy show, I, I was shocked because his comedy show was pretty blue. Ah, interesting. It was not the NBC special Bob Hope. Oh, okay. I mean, it was, it Carrying was, a golf club in his hand. And he did have the golf club oh, in his did. hand, but it, uh, there were some F-bombs. <laughs> And I was not expecting that from Bob Hope. Oh, I'm very surprised. It was, yeah. That's interesting. That was in, it was near the end of his career, mm-hmm. but it was, it was, it was shocking to me because yeah. I had grown up with the Bob Hope, you know. Right. Here we are in Dedang. You know. Yeah. No, exactly. So, Sue, what are you working on now? I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> you've got, he's working on a You've nap. got, what, five books published? Um, I've written seven. Four seven? that were published. One was about the, the one that was not published was stopped by the mob in Europe. It went to the Frankfurt Book Fair. There was a story when uh, in the 70s, a lot of the men who were the capos were killed and the wives took over. So it was about those wives. Uh, but the Frankfurt, the, the, the guys were at the Frankfurt Book Fair, so they killed that one. That sounds like a pretty fascinating story. The other one was uh, one that I loved that was about women in politics and uh, I sent I had it sent to uh, a publisher not realizing it was Hillary Clinton's publisher and Hillary was in the book and I was very complimentary to her and the people read it and said this is a great book but because we we handle Mrs. Clinton and we know you're nice to her we can't touch this. Then there was another one, another mafia situation. And I realized that when I just go write what I want to do, I can get in trouble or killed. Well, thankfully, you haven't got killed. <laughs> so, <laughs> thankfully. That, um, that would have made for a really lousy podcast. No, I, I, am, I, am writing a, I am writing a new book now, and it's like a follow-up to Hollywood Secrets and Scandals, where each, press, each person is a chapter. But it's, it's, if I can imagine this, it's even more personal than the other one because I didn't put a lot of me in that book. I talked about what was happening in the room and how I felt, but I want to add a little bit more of me uh, and and what that felt like growing up. All the names will be in there, but it's different. The, the study of celebrity is fascinating. Well, you are, I think, arguably the world's most expert 
study. I of actually celebrity. agree with you, but I, I, I'm not supposed I, to say that. Well, no, it's okay. Uh, I want you to tell the Veronica Lake ah. story because she received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and I believe you and the hosts, the MC of the event, were virtually the only people who attended, which is unbelievable to me because she was such she was a star. When stars were stars. Yeah. You know, when you talk about, and you mentioned, you know, Jimmy Stewart. Mm-hmm. Like, these these people were stars. Oh, she yeah. was a star. Oh, yes. But she, and you told us this, uh, I think, a little bit before. She worked hard at exiting Hollywood because she didn't like what was being done to her right. in her career. Right. Um, I, I remember my mother showing me movies of this woman with the long blonde hair. Because my mother was very good. She educated me on all the old movies. She taught me who everybody was and ran their movies. So all of my history was in my head before even starting. I think parents should continue to do that today, and I don't think they are, but I, I wish they would. Um, so when I was called by her publicist saying, she's coming out with a book, she's only going to be in Hollywood for one day, would you please interview her? I was always the one that the publicist would call when it was an older star who was a little like this. I was called when Rita Hayworth started to take off her clothes at the Golden Globes, and it caused a lot of trouble, and they called me, would you please have tea with Rita today? Because they knew I would write a nice piece to combat the clothes. So I'm, I work with them. I'm, I'm happy. It's not that I'm lying. I'm telling the truth of right. a story. But they know that I'm kind and I understand what's needed. And it, it, what you weren't going to write a hatchet piece never. on somebody. No, I mean there were the Rona Barretts of yes. the world. Yes. Who looked for the dirt? Yes, I'm smiling because I see Rona all the time. She lives in. Um, uh, in the San Inez Valley, she's one of my favorite people because we both see through everything. But, but she, had, she took a different tack. Yes, she you. did. Yeah, she did the Wicked Whisper. Yeah. Yeah, all that stuff. No, I never wanted to be that. No. No. And I it's think interesting that you two get along and her friends because... We were was, thrown into it. Yeah. And uh, I met her in the late 60s. We were just thrown into it. She was just doing, she was doing columns at the time. She didn't have her own magazines or anything. And we had a mutual friend who was a publicist, and she just kept inviting us to the same events. And so that's what happened. Uh, now, Rona has been extremely good to me, and I've been very good to her. Rona and I will be appearing at the Purple Room talking to each other. Oh, that's good. I've be- had three different dates set, and something has come up for her. I hope that she's not chickening out. <laughs> Um, but I really want to do that. Oh, yeah. I'll that, be there for that. Yeah, oh, that's going to be will great. definitely be there. All right, so back to Veronica Lake. She's uh, coming yes. into town one day. Yeah, and I go, oh, yes, it's the lady with the blonde hair who's very beautiful. And I had seen enough actors and actresses by that time. They have a look, a look of failure, whether it's uh, Betty Hutton. Uh, there's this failure that comes over them. And when she walked into Musso and Frank, she was wearing gray sweatpants, a gray sweatshirt with a hood, um, some little tank top, and either bedroom slippers or tennis shoes. No makeup. If I hadn't seen those movies, 
I wouldn't know who this woman was. When someone drinks too much alcohol and smokes too much, face. it's the face. And I just saw all of it. And fortunately, I hit, knock on wood, I have a gift for good or bad. If I see someone like that, I already know everything that's happened to them, and I know what's going to happen to them, and the whole thing is a sad mess. Hmm. So... I tried to ask her really nice questions, and she was saying, no, should I did it myself. I drank on the sets. I was mean to directors. I was difficult to work with. She said, I didn't want them playing with my hair. I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to do that. And I just, I just wanted out. Um, yet here she is, after being away from the screen for 40 years or something, she has a book to promote that she was pro- probably somebody. I'm sure somebody else wrote it. Right. And Veronica probably got a dollar ninety eight, and whoever wrote it got ten dollars, and it's not going to sell one copy. And my heart just broke when I when I see because she had she had it. Oh, she, she was, was the it woman at yes. that time. Yeah. I hate to see the it people go. And. Most of the it people don't come from a stable home. I've discovered that almost everyone that we lose uh, or where there's a career that goes like this and like this, like Lindsay Lohan or something, congratulations on her baby. Um, You cannot, like Jim Morrison, any of them, you can't sustain in Hollywood, if you don't, if you didn't come from a strong family background where the family had dinner together, if you had your parents' support, you can't drink and do drugs and survive. You can't. You also need to realize that unless you're smart, like a Nicole Kidman, who will have a career like Helen Hayes, who knows exactly what to do, the um, Sofia Vergara's, who I think is a very nice person and I enjoy watching her in America's Got Talent. She's not thinking, what am I going to be doing when I'm in my 70s? I am a product. What am I selling? And they don't think that because they just, it's, it's like bright lights exploding. It's too many bright lights and you need to move away from Hollywood and you, let, let your, you don't work too much, but let your work stand on its own and never stop working. But Veronica did move away, and but then when she received her star in the oh yeah, I forgot to tell you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yes, I'm glad Veronica moved away. She shouldn't have come back. Don't. In many cases, you need to know whether you stay or come back. Um, this was the saddest thing I've ever seen. When uh, it was Gary Owens from Laugh-In. That's right. And he was standing alone on the, on the sidewalk by her star. When you have a star on the Walk of Fame, they bring busloads by. They tell fans there are press releases. There are people all around. And he's Gary, Gary's just standing there. And I'm walking over with her publicist. I can't remember who it was. And any fool can see there's no one at my star. How embarrassing. Oh. How horrible. What a horrible thing to have happen and so I just stayed with her and and uh, tried to keep it upbeat and uh, I said would you sign your book to me and and she wrote here's hoping 
our first meeting won't be our last. Love, Veronica. Oh. And of course, we know it was. It was. Those stories. There's kill there's me. there's a picture of Gary Owens, you and her, mm-hmm. and you, you told me the story before I ever saw the picture. And the picture is so poignant, uh, and it brought the. It, it, it brought the story to life to me. It was just remarkable. I don't want to end on a sad note. Uh, talk about your friend Lucy Arnez. Happy birthday to it, Lucy. Just her l- birthday. Happy birthday, Lucy. Lucy's opening in 54 Below in New York on July 19th. She's doing her show, I Got the Job, which is absolutely fabulous. And then uh, Lucy is not working anymore at the moment until fall. <coughs> Excuse me. Palm Springs air conditioning. Um <laughs> She and her husband are going on the trip of a lifetime. They're going to Europe. They're going to Rome, Turkey, Greece, all of these wonderful things. Uh, they have the best place on the ship in terms of where they're staying. They really just decided, well, we haven't done this in years. If we're going to do it, let's just do it. And we have a friend in Rome named Bradley who works with Mother Teresa's nuns and he's their uh, choir director. So Bradley, who is also known to mix drinks for Pope Francis, is going to... (laughs) Rum and Coke. No, he likes (laughs) gin. Um, I knew I liked this Pope. (laughs) (laughs) So Bradley's going to take them through the Vatican uh, and all that stuff. They're going to have a ball. You guys have been friends for for virtually all of her life. Well, Lucy was 15. She was on Here's Lucy. And I went to interview her, and we hit it off immediately. And then um, her, I got a call from the press agent for, for uh, Lucille Ball. His name was Charlie Pomerantz, nicest man. And he said, Lucille Ball would like to have you over for a tea next Wednesday. And I said, what did I do? <laughs> She was terrifying. There were some people in Hollywood who were terrifying, and she's one of them. Not that she mistreated, she didn't do anything, but the stature and the hair and the voice, it was terrifying. So I went over there, and she was in her backgammon room, chain smoking. Uh, I, there may have been a, a glass of tea, and then she said to me, you're the one who interviewed Lucy, right? I went, yes. I'm, I thought that's it. I'm going to be found dead. And, <laughs> and I like that you think Lucille Ball's going to kill you, not Mickey Cohen. Yeah, we Cohen. didn't talk about Mickey Cohen. <laughs> I have no problem with Mickey. <laughs> women, guess women terrify me. I had no problem with Mickey. He was easy. He was easy to handle. Lucy was not easy to handle. Just ask my Lucy. Uh, anyway... She was very kind, and she said to me, thank you for being so nice to my daughter. Uh, it made me feel so good. She's working hard in this role. It, she was lovely to me. And our Lucy didn't know that story until about 10 years ago. Really? And she said, my mother thanked you for that article. Aww. I went, yeah. Wow. So it was nice. Well, I love this has been amazing. Lucy and Larry. They're terrific. Yes, they are. Uh, they have uh, I have a soft spot in my heart for both of them, uh, and I know that you guys are dear friends. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast and, and telling these stories. I have a million more questions about a million more people because I know you were close to all of them, but 
we'll we'll save that for the next visit. You got it. Sue, this has been Always incredible. My, my wife is, she's going to be floating when I get back and tell her about all of well, this the tonight. Hol- the hilarious thing is I never once mentioned Leslie Van Houten. Oh, that's right. And that's what we wanted to talk about. Very oh. quickly, Leslie Van Houten just paroled. One of the Manson family. I met Leslie when the warden of the prison called me to come speak there at a career day. That sounded terrifying to me. But I went, and the audience liked me, and I was upbeat to them and encouraging. And then as I was walking out, he said, could you stay a little longer? There's some other prisoners I'd like you to meet. He said, they're not in the general population. And, and I, I went, okay. And we're walking, and he says, you need to know they're the Manson girls. And I said, they killed my friend Sharon Tate. I'm not going. And he said, that's okay. You don't have to. And then the reporter in me went, are you nuts? So they took away all my jewelry, everything. I walked into the Manson's uh, living room. They had a living room there with a television set and a couch. And I was face-to-face with Leslie Van Houten, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Susan Atkins. Wow. Susan Atkins is the one who killed Sharon Tate. Yes. What was the energy like in that room? There were, it, was all, it was all different. Leslie Van Houten was wearing a tennis sweater and jeans and penny loafers, and she looked like young Mary Tyler Moore. She looked like she was waiting for lunch at uh, the Palm. Wow. I don't know what she was doing there. Susan Atkins looked at me, and I thought she was going to kill me on the spot. I, I'll never get that face out. Patricia Krenwinkel didn't know who I was, and she was kind of quizzical and whatever. Those two girls walked away, and I only sat with... Leslie. And I said, what are you doing here? I don't understand this. And you worked on her behalf. Yes. I, I was, it was very important to me. I wanted her paroled, and I was very angry at the Tate family. And I don't want to cast aspersions, because I've had people, friends of mine that I love, murdered. Uh, uh, they kept trying to loop Leslie in with the Manson girls and the Tate murders. Leslie wasn't there. She was uh, the prom princess whose parents got a divorce. She felt unsafe. She was taking drugs. She ran away to San Francisco. She was looking for a father figure. She, when she met Charles Manson, he was singing the shadow of your smile to her. And she just felt safe. When they moved to the Spawn Ranch, Manson was giving every single one of those people, boys or girls, LSD every single day. So their brains were wrecked. Um, she knew she wanted out. The day after the Tate, the Tate murder, she heard something horrible had happened. And then Tex Watson came over to her and said, you're, um, you're coming with us tonight. And she didn't want to go. She was very scared. And, uh, but again, remember, the LSD fries the brain. Right. So there's a part of her that gets what's going on and another part that's not working at all. They went to the La Bianca house. Leslie has said two different stories. What she told me was that she was at the refrigerator trying not to go anywhere in the house, just looking at the refrigerator. And Tex Watson came over to her and said, you better go kill somebody because Charlie told me to kill you if you don't kill anybody. And she told me that she walked down the hall and she saw Mrs. LaBianca. She thought Mrs. LaBianca was dead. I'm not giving excuses to this. I'm just telling you this is what Leslie said. She thought she was dead. And Tex Watson said, do something. So Leslie stabbed her many times. I think Uh, she's testified 16 times. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
she also has told me that she thinks uh, Mrs. Labiaka was dead. I don't know. I don't know. I only know that she was unlike the other two. Susan Atkins fortunately died of cancer. Patricia, who uh, I have also seen through the years, has become uh, much more friendly and accepting. I still don't accept anything from Patricia. Sorry. Right. Um, but Leslie, this was really uh, a horrible thing that this girl got into. She was there in prison for 53 years. She has a number of degrees. She's a really sweet girl, and she's not going to hurt anybody. These people who say she's going to go out, no, they don't know who this This is a nice girl. No. No, she was really a victim. Totally. Part of that as well. Yes, completely. Sue, <laughs> a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, I loved it. I always like finishing up on the laughs like that. Yeah, after I a laughed. Manson murder I story. I don't know how that we, we, goes with look, the man. This was fantastic, Sue. This is exactly what I was hoping this hour was going to be. Oh, good. Thank you so much. That was just the... <laughs> That's oh, literally yeah. the tip of the iceberg. With nine more episodes to go. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to spend time with you. So much fun. And I think when we do, I'm going to say thank you for having me on your podcast. Thank you both. I've had a fabulous time. Thank you for being here. Sue Cameron. Thank you on sound. Thank you to John McMullen, our producer and engineer. And, of course, Randy simply could not do Let's this without not forget you. Randy. Oh, I'm sorry. I just wanted to and throw that out there. And you're still here, which is remarkable. That's great. Uh, we couldn't do this without Randy unless we find somebody else. <laughs> no. <laughs> Anybody in the bar. Anybody else. Uh, there are a number of promising prospects. Thank you very much for... <laughs> I don't think so. No, no, Randy. <laughs> Randy, this—he's the brains behind this operation. Well, it's very which good. How sad scare, is that? Scare no. every one of us, and of course, find us on your favorite podcast platform. For Randy and John and our guest Sue, I'm Patrick Evans. Join us next time on Big Conversations Little Bar. Thanks for listening to Big Conversations Little Bar. Join Randy and Patrick next time as we keep the conversation going right here on Big Conversations, Little Bar. Bar.